The roadways are definitely getting more dangerous. Between our own cell phone use and the fact that cars are practically computers. Teslas are known for their ultra-modern interior, which includes no buttons or knobs. All functions are activated and controlled on the touchscreen itself. We're all distracted on the road, and we're not as great as we think at turning our attention back to the road. A driver cannot split second take control of the vehicle again, and then in parallel, split second, look at their phone, and then look back up to the roadway and have 100% attentional ability immediately. There is a lag. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, what screens are doing to our brains. From the sidewalks to the highway, everyone's a little preoccupied on the road. But it's not just your eyes off the road. It's your brain off the road, too. Brian Porter is a professor of psychology at Old Dominion University. He says both pedestrians and drivers have to hold themselves accountable for technology-related car accidents. Brian, we hear a lot about distracted drivers. What are distracted pedestrians, and how bad is that these days? Well, I tell you, you know, we often don't think about pedestrians in the same distracted kind of mobility discussion that uh, we talk about with drivers, right? We're always so concerned about drivers on their phones or drivers who are paying attention to what they're eating or what their passengers are saying that we don't really think about we as walkers. We think for some reason, hey, it's okay to be out there and, and, and be distracted by walking. What, what on earth could happen to us? Well, you know, it turns out that, that pedestrians are, are an overrepresented group of those who are killed on our roads annually. And a good bit of those problems have a lot to do with distractions. So, you know, for example, we found that over a third of the pedestrians were distracted as they were actively crossing roadways. So this is not a small problem when you think about one out of three pedestrians may not be fully attending to watching what they're doing when they cross the road. And what do you mean a third are distracted? They're looking down at phones? Well, yes, wearing headphones was the most common distraction that we observed. And we also don't think, you know, wearing headphones, who cares, right? We could still hear the traffic uh, through our headphones. But there is some interesting research saying that that does essentially uh, minimize one's ability to attune to the environment, that that puts the brain in a place. And by the way, when we're talking about distractions, we're talking about where your brain is, okay? What cognitive resources are you using? So if I'm listening to music in my headphones, do I really see the traffic around me? So just like if I'm a driver and I'm on my phone, do I see the pedestrian crossing in front of me? That's a concern. Same with pedestrians. Do I see the car coming at me if I'm wearing my headphones? Where is my brain right now? The second thing that pedestrians were most often doing was text messaging, right? We've all seen that crossing the street. People are text messaging. And, you know, Sarah, you and I could ask ourselves, honestly, have we ever crossed a road looking at our phone texting? Have we ever fallen prey to that? And if we have, we need to be certainly not doing that anymore. And then talking on the phone was actually the third most common behavior we saw. Well, your own campus is in an urban environment. What do you see driving around the grounds of Old Dominion University? Well, driving around here, I I will be honest, we have not done direct assessments of distracted driving on campus. But here's the concern, sir, I want to bring out. People think, well, that's good, right? So Dr. Porter's team is not seeing handheld mobile phone use out there. That's great. Drivers are doing great with Bluetooth. But there's research that's been done in other labs around the United States that's shown that hands-free use does not solve what the brain is doing problem. It doesn't solve the cognitive distraction problem. That is fascinating and counterintuitive. Yes. Hands-free driving is not safer than handheld driving. Not from a cognitive perspective. Again, it's this multiple layers of safety. You're still having a conversation and that is still taking resources away from you as you drive. Well, you know, I've talked to people, let's say, who are driving in the DC area, Mm -hmm. have their Google Maps is on, they're navigating where to go, and then they go, wait a minute, wait, 
I just missed my turn. Yes. So we have multi-layers of sort of digital distraction. Oh, good grief. Don't we ever. Think about all the entertainment that's put into our vehicles now and the touch screens that are put into our vehicles now. And some of those touch screens are not really within eyesight, right? We have to look down in a way to interact with some of these touch screens. So absolutely, all these navigational devices, and mostly they're on our phones now, even if they're mounted somehow, we're still looking away from the road. We're still engaging with them. And get this, now we've introduced the motor component back because I'm using my hand, right, to scroll or to zoom in or to enter coordinates. And this is important also if we ever want to talk about self-driving vehicles, autonomous vehicles. What happens when the driver lets the car take over, does whatever the driver wants to do, and then the car wants the driver to take control again, right? So there's an emergency and the vehicle alerts the driver. You must now take control. A driver cannot split second take control of the vehicle again. And then in parallel, split second, look at their phone and then look back up to the roadway and have 100% attentional ability immediately. There is a lag. I didn't realize that driverless vehicles do have moments where they say, oh my God, take the wheel. Yeah, some do, <laughs> some do. And, and you know, the, the experts talk about levels of automation, right? Mm -hmm. Most scenarios, there's, there's semi-autonomous vehicles, whether it's the vehicles that you can set to self-driving on highway, or there's different levels of autonomy, okay? So in each one of those cases, there is a system these cars do where they there will be points where the driver has to retake control. And, and psychologists around the world have been concerned with, okay, how quickly can the driver truly retake control of that vehicle? Not quickly enough, Not generally. Not quickly. It just takes seconds to take control. Now, no, no, let me give you and the listeners a scenario. We'll look at our phone. We'll talk to our passenger. We might be reading the book, if we, you know, which we shouldn't be doing in most of those scenarios, but we do. And now we get the alert to take control. And now I have to figure out, what is that alert? Okay, what does that alert mean? Okay, where is the risk coming from? Okay, what should I do? Each one of those steps I just mentioned to you takes time. And by that point, depending on how fast you're going, it may be too late. It may be too late for you to mitigate a crash. You know, just before the pandemic hit, pedestrian deaths reached a three-decade high. And a lot of cities launched campaigns urging walkers to put down their phones. But studies are saying most of the blame is actually due to the driver's texting, even though, yeah, there's plenty of blame for earbud-wearing and iPhone-gazing pedestrians that most of the blame really is with the drivers being distracted. Is that true? I tend to try not to put blame on anybody. So there are times, for example, where pedestrians can be at fault, just as there's times, obviously, drivers can be at fault. So it's not very helpful to think about it, who's at fault, and let's, let's focus on that. I look at it as a system. Why are drivers motivated in a way to drive in certain ways? Why are pedestrians motivated to walk in certain ways? There are essentially things that shape those behaviors, okay? So what about the system is not working to stop the pedestrian from taking that risk or to encourage the driver, motivate the driver to put the phone down. That's, that's where I focus on. So how big a problem is this? As we're opening up after the pandemic, are we starting to see more collisions for pedestrians? Sarah, here's the thing about COVID that makes COVID truly so far in my lifetime a once in a lifetime event. If you look at the fatality crash rate overall for the United States in 2019, pre-COVID, in 2020, during COVID, and we're waiting to hear the final numbers for 2021. But from 2019 to 2020, fatality rate in the United States year to year increased 24%. Oh. That rate has not been observed in the history of monitoring fatality rates in the United States. And that history began in 1966. What does that suggest to you? What are you thinking? Well, that COVID was a once in a hundred year, once in a lifetime event that has just wreaked havoc on public health at large. The number of deaths, the raw count of fatalities did go down during COVID, but the rate continued to go up. That's because there were fewer people on the road. So driving actually plummeted. We know that speeding crashes went up. 
So people were speeding more during COVID. So the question is, why are we doing it? <laughs> why are we speeding? Why do we take that opportunity to use the open road accordingly? That research is still coming out. So, so we've had all these general assemblies and local governing bodies who've made the decision to, let's really solve our pedestrian accident problem and make sure that drivers who inevitably will use their phones in the cars are doing it hands-free. Yeah. And everybody's going hands-free and thinking, hey, this is better. What you're saying is it hasn't been better. What should we be doing? Well, hands-free, I would argue hands-free as a stepping stone is better than no law at all. Let's be clear. Oh. To me, it's a stepping stone. And when people get used to that, when people get used to not holding a phone, the policymakers see, look, this can work. The public is, you know, adjusting to this and it's now part of our culture. And at that point, we can then look, okay, how do we make it better? And now better would be no conversations at all or whatever the case may be. Now, that's going to be hard in the Bluetooth world. I'm, I'm going to be practical with you, Sarah. <laughs> And then going totally nuts, looking into the future, maybe it is driverless cars that we're inevitably moving toward, yeah. which which will not require alert, alert, grab the wheel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Our vehicle fleets last about a generation, about 20 years. So let's think about that for a moment. When is the earliest the United States will have nothing but a driverless environment? We are talking at a minimum, if everything goes well with the technology, and let's say the technology was perfect today, at the earliest we would all be interacting in a driverless system is 20 years from now. Okay, so what you're really saying is we probably have to make our peace yes. with pedestrian deaths yes. and encounters because that is the price of our advances in cell phone technology. Well, really, yeah, well, that's where we are. Where we are, but let's, here's where I don't want you or anybody or myself or anybody to feel helpless about this. I don't want to make peace with those deaths, okay? What I don't want to make peace with is just to say we can't do anything about it until we get driverless cars because waiting for something that is still unlikely in the future is not going not to save lives. So where's the practicality? We know mobile phones are here to stay. And, and we know that we have the system that has to adapt to that technology quickly. And we have human behavior that has adapted great to the use of mobile technology, but not so great to how that technology impacts their safety. I have a small idea. Mm -hmm. What if our iPhones alerted us about safety and crosswalks, right? Well, you know, look, we have the technology now to shut down mobile phones while you're driving. We, we don't use it because it's politically not. We don't want to. Uh, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so could someone develop an app that would shut your phone down if you are near an intersection? Could that be done? Yeah. Is that likely to be done and accepted? Perhaps by some people, but here's the thing. The people that probably would accept that app are those that are going to be like you, me, and our listeners, concerned and worried and wanting to take action. <laughs> yeah. Brian Porter is Associate Dean of the Graduate School and Professor of Psychology at Old Dominion University. Kids these days, always on a tablet or some sort of screen. And can they really spell or do they just have a good relationship with Siri? Children today are hooked on screens as early as two years old because we are. Robin Conrad is a professor of psychology at James Madison University. She says these screens are absolutely affecting children's information processing. Robin, my kids grew up for a while when there were no cell phones or computer screens, but then they had them. But a lot of the toddlers and elementary school children today, I guess all of them, have never been without screens. Can you tell the difference? Are they different brains from the generation before them? That's a great question. I think what people call children who are growing up with these devices in their everyday lives, they call them digital natives as opposed to digital immigrants. So these digital natives, these children who are growing up with these devices in their everyday lives, it's a great and important question to ask. Are their brains different? So 
I think it's probably possible to say that children these days, yes, their brains are going to probably look different. And some of that might be okay. And some of that might be not so good. And we need to be vigilant about how we are engaging our children with these digital media. You've been looking at the effect of screen time on toddlers and the effect of screen time on older elementary school age children. What differences are you noticing? I think the biggest difference, especially for parents and for educators to know, is that children that are younger than three really have significant limitations in what they can learn and take away from digital media. There's so much research now on that that the American Academy of Pediatrics has released some relatively new guidelines on interactions with digital media and what parents can expect and what they might want to avoid. For example, toddlers, two and under toddlers, they don't do a very good job of learning information from screens. So, you know, those videos like Baby Einstein and some other types of videos, mm-hmm. they're targeted towards these young children and they you know, make claims like, well, you know, your children will learn vocabulary. You, you sit them down in front of Bach and Mozart and they'll hear this music and they'll see a ball bouncing on the screen and they'll, they'll hear words that describe the ball. They'll be learning those words. Um, but actually, a lot of research has shown that children at this age have what we call a video deficit effect. And what that fancy term means um, basically is just they aren't actually learning information from that experience. They are very engaged and often parents take their engagement and their enjoyment, their enthusiasm for watching those videos as that they're learning something. And as teachers probably can tell you, there's a big difference between being engaged and actually having learned something. You did an interesting experiment using video chatting with a toddler that demonstrated they don't really learn screen time as well as they do from face-to-face interactions. Tell me about the experiment you did with a child's father and a stranger to the child. Yes. So I was interested in what children understand from video chat because I had actually was randomly watching an interview with a, a military father who had been deployed. And this was actually a while ago when video chatting was just starting to become ubiquitous easily accessible to people, everyday people with everyday phones. And this family started to use video chat with their very young daughter to keep in touch with the father who was deployed for months at a time. And when the father came back, he claimed, you know, this was such a wonderful experience. I really feel connected to my child. I'm so glad that we were able to do this. And the mother who was with the daughter on the other end, um, in the interview, she said, agreed, and this was a great way to develop the relationship with her father when he could not be physically present. Um, But at the very end of the interview, the mother said, you know, it's so cute. Sometimes the laptop will be sitting on the table and her father will be sitting on the couch in the other room and she'll go over to the laptop and say, where's daddy? Where's daddy? And to me as a developmental psychologist, It is cute, but it also Mm -hmm. raises some red flags, right, about what is this young child, this 18-month-old, actually thinking? And so some of my research that explored this question actually suggests that this child might be thinking that she has a daddy on the couch and she has a daddy on the computer screen, and they may not actually be the same person. Is that necessarily a harm? Yeah, that's a great question. Is this harmful? I don't know that it's harmful, but I think it's important to understand what the limitations might be of this technology. So, yeah. you know, it's it's wonderful that the father had this experience and that the child had this experience. But we also need to have realistic expectations about what children are gaining from this experience, what they are understanding from that kind of interaction. So if you're a grandparent and you haven't really had much opportunity to engage with your grandchild other than on a video chat, you know, it's it's good for the grandparents to have that interaction and to get to know their young grandchildren, but also have realistic expectations. When you do finally get to go visit that grandchild, don't be disappointed. 
if they may not immediately run to you with love in their eyes. It might still take them a while to connect the dots and they need to be scaffolded with that. What do you find with children who are three and above? Is the experience with digital media any different for them? Yes. By the time children are three, there is a huge cognitive shift in their understanding of symbols. And if you think about it, screens are really symbols for something that is happening somewhere else. And their understanding shifts where they are now able to have this conceptual realization about the meaning of screens, the meaning of interacting with digital ebooks, for example, and also interactive apps, as well as TV shows. So their understanding shifts, and that's a really important reason why they are able to learn better from screen media or interactive apps. Um, in fact, you know, we know from research that looks at children who watch Sesame Street, for example, um, particularly for children who may not have a very rich environment at home, um, maybe they don't have uh, a lot of stimulation at home. Children coming from these underprivileged environments actually do benefit in terms of their language and literacy development from watching shows like Sesame Street that are targeted for young children and have particular qualities about them. For example, they're slow, they're repetitive. I'll give you a perfect example of that. Um, <laughs> when, uh, when COVID started and we were shutting down, um, and you're trying to figure out how do you explain this to your young kids who are used to going to preschool and playing with their friends and they're trying to understand what's going on. Well, there's a Daniel Tiger show about what do you do when you're sick and you know what, what are the best things to do if you're sick. And they have a very simple song that goes something like, when you're sick, rest is best. And they, they play this over and over again throughout the show. My four-year-old, when COVID started, she was asking me questions about COVID and we talked about how, you know, it it's a virus and it can make people very sick and we're trying not to share our germs. And so we're going to stay at home for a little while. And we watched this show on Daniel Tiger and she's, you know, running around singing, it's COVID time, it's COVID time. Rest is best when you're sick, rest is best. And you're singing the song. So shows like that can really support learning and understanding of difficult concepts. So, yes, those shows, it's, it's not that we need to say screens are terrible and we should never, ever let our children interact with screens. Screens are a part of our daily lives. And I think it's really important to understand the best way to engage with them. So parents co-viewing with their children, talking about the shows that they're watching, doing things together is always helpful for scaffolding learning. Apps, interactive shows, they're not ever going to take the place of live face-to-face -face interaction, but they can help to support learning for children who are three or older. So in a completely digital age, what do you think screen time has replaced with parents? We assume some parents are more perfect than others, but most of us are pretty imperfect. What do you think children were doing before? Were they allowed to get bored and then create their own imaginary happy places? One of the dangers of too much screen time is, in fact, changes in the brain function where um, attentional development is concerned. And yes, one of the reasons why children are so engaged when they watch TV shows or when they're playing with their iPads is because you are basically giving them their entertainment. They don't have to do the hard work of being bored and figuring out what to do with themselves. They don't have to do the hard work of managing their attention. And so when we have too much screen time, we're not giving children and really children's brains the time and the space um, to learn how to do that. And there's some really interesting uh, research going on right now about how, how children's brains are changing as screen time goes up. So areas of the brain that are involved in sustained attention, being able to focus on a task, especially tasks that might be hard or they might be tedious or not so, so much fun. So, you know, some tasks in school, for example, 
Um, children who have more screen time are less good at doing those tasks. And in fact, a longitudinal study that's going on has been some preliminary findings anyway, have shown that children who have more screen time before the age of three actually have worse performance in those kinds of tasks when they get into their school-aged years. So this kind of research is still in its infancy, but I think some common sense, you know, can be helpful in this area where, you know, we don't want screens to replace rich experiences that children might have playing with their peers, playing with their siblings, interacting with their caregivers. We don't want these activities on screens to replace going outside and manipulating objects and exploring and, yes, even being bored. So it's not probably a great idea if your child says, you know, mommy, I'm so bored. Can I go watch TV? Oh, you know, sometimes that's okay. Mm -hmm. But we don't want that to be our default. You know, of course, so much of this is about parenting exhaustion. I mean, children love screen time, and it gives parents a chance to recharge or work or veg. I'm just saying it's hard to resist allowing our children or putting them in front of screens when we love it and they love it, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And have you faced that yourself? Absolutely. My husband and I, we both have full-time jobs. I have three children, ages seven, almost five, and two and a half. Oh. So, you know, they're not independent. <laughs> they do require a lot of attention. And so, yeah, trying to balance just, you know, the day-to-day -day domestic tasks along with carrying two full-time jobs when your daycares and when your schools are shutting down. And it is okay to use screens if you need to. I think the main takeaway is do your best to have some balance. Do you ever find yourself with your husband having a disagreement over whether now is a good time for screen time or not? Yes. <laughs> my, my husband <laughs> and I have definitely had those moments where we're, we're desperate to, you know, do something for our job or finish a task at home. And we may not have communicated well that, you know, I let our kids watch TV this morning for an hour and now you're letting them, you know, it's your turn to parent and you're letting them watch TV. So yes, having communication about when you are using media. So in our home, we try to put everything away during dinner time. You know, we, we try to have good face-to-face -face interactions where we're not distracted by technology and screens. Um, but yes, I think everybody has had those moments where you have some disagreements over what is okay or what is not okay. Robin Conrad, this has been so much fun. Thanks for talking with me and with good reason. Thank you so much. This has been really fun. Thanks for inviting me. Robin Conrad is a professor of psychology at James Madison University. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. Remember those $80 textbooks from college? Well, Thomas Geary is a professor of English at Tidewater Community College when he noticed his students were taking out loans and working extra jobs just to make ends meet. He switched to all free learning materials and radically transformed what constitutes knowledge in his classroom. He's been named an outstanding faculty member by the State Council of Higher Education for Virginia. Tom, you use a lot of technology in your courses. In fact, you try not to rely on expensive textbooks. When did that occur to you that you needed to do that approach with your community college students? I started noticing that I wasn't using the textbooks as much as I wanted to in the classroom. I had expensive textbooks, textbooks that cost $150, $200 that students were buying, and they were having to take out student loans, they were having to work additional jobs just to be able to afford the texts. And I was worried that it wasn't worth it. I started questioning, do they need this textbook? Or is there an alternative? Is there something else I can use? And I started relying a little bit more on resources that were free, ones that I could find online. You've said some of these free resources you can find on the internet can be as good as or even better in some cases than material in certain textbooks. How so? 
I feel like a lot of the resources that we get in textbooks are great. And many of them are written by authors who put a lot of time and effort into those texts. But sometimes they get outdated quickly. Sometimes it's just one voice. And sometimes it's just in one modality where you're only getting a text and there's nothing else there with it. And when I'm able to use open educational resources, which are works that are zero cost, there's a removal of the access barrier so that anybody can access these online. You're able to use videos, use audio, use video games, use different types of things that are updated at any point. Give me one example of somebody who you would love to be able to teach, but it's in the textbook (laughs) only, and you really can't have that particular writing. One of my favorites is Malcolm Gladwell. He writes and has podcasts and has all kinds of different types of modalities where he's communicating information. And he has so many great texts that are out there like David versus Goliath and Blink. And he also has a podcast called Revisionist History where his episodes analyze and consider and reflect upon moments in history and whether we have things right or what this means or who tells the stories, who has control over that. And I would love to be able to use his works more in the classroom. And losing out on that special kind of voice is difficult. But I also know that when I'm able to make those sacrifices and find works that are Creative Commons licensed, ones that students can use for free, it gives them more of an opportunity to be able to learn. Why can't you use Malcolm Gladwell? Why can't you play a podcast in the classroom and have a discussion? We can play a podcast in the classroom, but if I'm teaching certain classes that are Z classes. So at Tidewater Community College, where I teach, we have a Z degree program where students can have no cost for their textbooks. The Z stands for zero cost, which means they're able to finish an entire degree without paying for textbooks over the course of their degree. Then all of the works in that class should be Creative Commons licensed. They should be ones where the creators, who are often educators, develop the resources and want to share them as openly as possible rather than copyright them. But couldn't you have 95 copies of Blink that you pass around year after year after year to all the students? I could. And there are many instructors who do that. (laughs) The class that I teach, I want to try to make sure that it is all OERs instead of having those texts. But it is a question that I come back to and think about. Give me an example of something that you have found that delights you that is not Malcolm Gladwell, but is a pretty good substitute that you do use. So one of the things that I found recently was I wanted students to summarize something for an English 112 class, which is our college composition class. And I didn't want them just to summarize a traditional article or something that might bore them, but I wanted it to be something engaging. And so I found a video game and it's called The Same Dream Every Day. And it's like one of those 8-bit kind of games, like you're playing like an old Nintendo kind of game in a sense, but the character is going through the depressive everyday life uh, in just kind of dealing with the in and outs of everyday life that they don't necessarily enjoy. And Mm -hmm. it's gloomy, but the students are able to use it. It's an open educational resource, and they're able to play it. They're able to summarize the plot, but also think about what else should I summarize? Should I pay attention to the graphics, the gameplay? What else do readers need to know? How does that help them? I think it helps in the sense that it's something different. When I say you're going to read something and summarize it, they think, okay, well, I need to do that because I have to get a grade. But when they hear that they're going to play a game that's interactive and it's short, they're more likely to say, huh, I'm interested. I want to try this. I kind of want to play it right now or try to look at YouTube and see if there's any walkthroughs so I don't have to play it all. But they're more interested in the story. It becomes something that they're more familiar with and maybe it's an easier way into the assignment. I can see how it'd be fun to play and dissect and write about a video game. But how is it better for them than, let's say, just having reading and writing about books like The Odyssey or Macbeth? I think that they've had a lot of exposure to those types of texts already throughout their high school career, and they will in other college classes as well. And it's not that necessarily one's better than the other. I think it's that I want students to be able to possess 21st century literacy, and I want them to be able to think in a different way. I want them to be able to engage visuals and think rhetorically, and I want them to be able to play video games and listen to podcasts and watch videos and that more so mirrors their everyday experience. Uh, Students need to be able to communicate in a networked world and to be able to do that in different types of contexts, to not just be able to 
read traditional texts as they always have, but to be able to be creators and to be able to remix and to curate and, and do other types of things that we may not always associate as writing, but they definitely belong in the writing classroom. Speaking of remixing, you also use something in the classroom called sound writing. What's sound writing? So sound writing is thinking with and through sound. And what that means is you're really creating through audio. So often we think of, okay, if I want to create a podcast or a radio show, like with good reason, or if you want to try to craft some kind of speech, you write it out as a script, and then you try to convert that into audio as best you can. But Good sound writing is where you're not just in that traditional writing form, but also thinking about the other aspects like recordings you could work into it or the music or the sounds or the ambient noise in the background and how all those come together to create a different form of communication. When did you first think of sound writing? Did you have an experience that you stumbled into? I've been listening to a lot of podcasts. (laughs) I was listening to a lot of podcasts and I was reading research from others who were interested in sound writing. And I thought, this is really cool. It's something I want to try to do in my classroom. And I already had students who were doing work in the classroom that felt like it was sound writing to me. You also use TED Talks. Tell me some about those videos that you incorporate into your English classes. Sure. So I like using TED Talks in the class. They're often ones that they're engaging. They show presentations that people have created that are brief, they're easy to digest, but they're also thought-provoking. It's something that I think students benefit from. They really enjoy being able to watch a TED Talk, to listen to it, to have the transcript, because all of them are highly accessible as well, which is great. And it's a little bit different, again, than just a traditional reading. It's something a little bit easier for them to digest, and they know exactly how long they're going to be spending listening or watching It's so interesting. You also have so many to choose from that you can bring very diverse voices into the classroom. Absolutely. There are so many that are out there. And it's great because there are national TED Talks, there are regional TED Talks. It really opens up the class to different diverse voices, which I enjoy a lot. I feel like having one or two textbooks is great for students, but being able to rely on a variety of different voices, it opens up not just having that single story, but rather it gives them a chance to be able to consider what is being said by others and to to see different perspectives. Tell me about your students. Tell me about the kinds of walks of life they come from and what you've learned from them. Sure. I have all kinds of amazing students, and I'm really proud to teach the students at Tidewater Community College and in the Virginia Community College system. So many of them are adult students, returning students, students who are former military, especially in the Hampton Roads area of Virginia. We have so many military students and students who are active or formerly military. And so many of them have incredible experiences. And so often I learn things about them and I learn things about issues that I hadn't even thought of those perspectives before because of what they've been through. So something that I very much make a big part of every one of my classes is narrative storytelling. I want students to be able to tell their stories and that might come in the form of writing a story. It might come in the form of using reflective storytelling as part of an analysis or a reflection. It might be part of an argument. And I'm an advocate for using first person in their arguments because I feel like some of their stories are ones that can be just as effective without having it only be research. It could be research mixed with that storytelling and it creates this incredible blend that becomes so much more rich and full. What sort of challenges do you think they have that are obstacles to pricey textbooks or customary ways that you did things in college? Sure. So one of the things that I know a lot of students face is food and housing insecurity. I've talked to my students about this, not necessarily on an individual basis so often, but more so just as a general, uh, what kinds of problems they run into about the costs of housing, about being able to afford rent, about being able to make sure that they eat well. And I see them face those problems and those struggles. And just this semester, I started allowing for my classes that are face-to-face now that we're back on campus to also be able to join in via Zoom and also join in kind of asynchronously just online when they can and join in by watching recordings and posting to our discussion board. And I noticed that more and more students in one of my classes were just joining in via Zoom instead of coming to the class. 
And the really quick initial impression somebody might have from that is, well, yeah, it's lazy or it's easier. But I asked students, why is it that you guys are coming on Zoom instead of coming to class? And they all said the price of gas is so high. <laughs> it's just right. so costly to come to campus right now that it just it's making a difference for me to be able to stay home just the one day a week or two days a week right now. And I think giving the students that flexibility, having them be able to see things a little differently or to be able to join in as they can is something that I hope gives them the opportunity to learn at their own pace. How much do you worry, though, that they're going to lose out and they really won't get the full benefit of the class? There's part of that concern for sure. I know that I want students to be able to socialize with each other, to be able to have group work opportunities, to be able to draft workshops with one another, to hear each other's stories. And I worry that if I have some students on Zoom and some in person and some who are attending more remotely, that communication is not quite as lively or sharp as I want it to be. But I've noticed that the students who are on Zoom are posting in the chat. They're sending me emails later on. They come back to class and they know what's happened. (laughs) So they're able to connect with the students when they are there. And it leads to a very different kind of feel, but I feel like I'm getting more used to it. It's something a little bit more modern. (laughs) What advice would you give other educators who want to be more compassionate in the classroom? Sure. So one of the things I would advocate for, for a lot of teachers, a lot of instructors, is to think about who our students are and what obstacles they face. And maybe not overturn everything you're doing and say, I don't need to have a textbook or I don't need to or I'll start accepting all late work and allow for all revisions like Tom does, but rather to question why the policies are there. What kind of things should we or can we do to allow students to be able to grow, to be able to have an opportunity, to be able to submit something and have the extra couple of days? Sometimes that makes a world of difference. Even today, I was in class and I had a student who seemed really stressed out And I thought she was doing a great job this semester. She's turned in really good work. And she was kind of bummed out because she'd received a B minus on an essay. But she said she's always usually an A student and she has other work she's completing. And it just seemed like it was all hitting her kind of hard, especially with one last week left of class. I could sense that just having a little bit of extra time might benefit her. Being able to have that encouraging communication from an instructor, being able to feel like she is going to succeed and that it's everything's going to be okay can really help make her day easier and maybe help propel her to the finish line and if she's facing that kind of concern and and worry at this point in the semester i can only imagine how many students are so a compassionate form of pedagogy is something that may not fit every single class but it's something that we can at least think about tom gary this is so uplifting what a great teacher you are (laughs) thank you (laughs) Thomas Geary is a professor of English at Tidewater Community College. He's been named an outstanding faculty member by the State Council of Higher Education for Virginia. Smartwatches come in handy for all types of things, helping people keep up with blood pressure, increasing physical activity, and of course, sending a text from your wrist. George Mason University researcher Vivian Mahdi is developing a smartwatch app that helps neurodiverse people live more independently. She's visiting in Serbia and joined me via Zoom to share more about it. Vivian, you're working with a partner on this really terrific research idea about using a smartwatch to help neurodiverse young people. How did you get that idea? Uh, Actually, I've been working with smartwatches since 2014. And I've met a professor from the Special Education Division, Anya Evmanova, and she has been working with um, uh, students with intellectual and developmental disabilities for a while. And I was fascinated by the potential of smartwatches and wearable computing can help uh, people with diverse needs. It must have really helped you to actually meet these young people and shadow them throughout their day. Yes, it was inspiring to talk to them, to see um, their activities in the university. It also helped us to better understand some of the challenges that they faced uh, so that we would uh, build uh, an application, design something that's really uh, beneficial for them, that meets their needs. 
These are young adults with Down syndrome or cerebral palsy or autism, and they usually have people who help them with their daily tasks or help out in a crisis situation or when they're feeling stressed. Tell me about just some of the little things that you notice that can, that they need to overcome that you thought, you know what, technology could actually make this a lot easier. Yes, one of the biggest challenges that they faced was uh, related to emotion regulation, right? So first, knowing at a given moment if they are feeling stressed, nervous, anxious, worried. This specific challenge is something that makes it more difficult for them to follow courses, to communicate with each other, to sustain relationships, or to find employment. Uh, so that's why we decided to focus uh, specifically on emotion regulation. Where you are right now is testing out what you've put together and making adjustments as to what's working for these young people and what's less effective? Yeah, so currently we have a field study going on. Um, so we distribute the watches to um young adults uh, with neurodiverse conditions. So some of them have Down syndrome, others have autism, and uh, we let them explore the watches uh, for a couple of weeks. And we gather their feedback to really understand what is easy to use, what they like the most, and what we can improve in this watch. Right? So what can be automated, uh, what is missing um, in the application. Do you find any of them think, this is great, I love it? Yes, there are people who are really excited about the watch and the application. They want to continue using it after uh, the study is over, which is great. So we, we do expect um, this application to be uh, public soon so that they can um, use on their own watches beyond the, the project. How could a smartwatch, how could mere technology help out with reducing stress, let's say? The smartwatch technology can help to reduce stress by telling them um, when they are feeling uh, more uh, anxious or when they are feeling more um, worried, uh, just using the, the data from the sensors and uh, analyzing that data, right? Um, once we know that there is a change in their uh, heart rate, in their movement, we are able to uh, send them um, interventions that can help uh, to regulate uh, their emotions at a given time. Give me a little story that that is a hypothetical. Let's say there's a young woman, she's in a class, she has autism, and the smartwatch senses that she's feeling very anxious. Mm -hmm. When she's in the class, if she's feeling very anxious, she may uh, use her hand to regulate, so just tapping on the desk. And if that's happening, um, the sensor in the watch can, can notice that that's happening. And then uh, she will see a prompt message on the watch telling her maybe you should uh, go for a walk, drink a sip of water, or uh, go for a walk. And these are suggestions that can be provided by the student at a given moment or that can be used from a list or catalog of uh, potential suggestions. Have there been moments where you realized, oh, yeah, 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 this is a bad idea, and other moments where you loved the efficacy of the Watch app? Yes, we learned that for each person, there is a particular intervention or suggestion that is more appropriate, right? So it's extremely important to tailor that app to uh, be more personalized, right? So some of the young adults would prefer to go for a walk. Others would prefer music, gaming, journaling. And uh, we incorporated all this uh, knowledge gained during our studies uh, to make sure that the application um, serves the purpose and, and it's very beneficial for them. In one of the first studies, like the few studies in the classroom, we had students who were very proud to participate in the design of the app, in the research study. Uh, so they would show to all their colleagues that they actually had a brand new watch and uh, that that watch was help, helping them with uh, emotion regulation. Uh, we also had moments more recently in which the participant didn't have the watch at a given time, and it was a situation of distress. For instance, when there was the game um, football uh, in Washington, there was a shooting uh, event, 
And the participant was not wearing the watch at that time, but she told us later on that she really wished she had the watch at that moment because she really needed help with um, self-regulation and, and she couldn't uh, do that on her own. So she told us, oh, I wish I, I had the watch at that uh, particular moment because that would have been very helpful for me. Why a watch, which many people have, but more people have cell phones? Why not just have a cell phone do all this? Uh, the watch has advantages, like you wear it um, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, you also can use that when you are showering or when you are sleeping. Um, you have sensors that can be helpful to uh, better understand how you're feeling in a given moment, where you are or what you are doing. Um, so I consider uh, smartwatches as having uh, several benefits, several advantages that can be um, explored in, in a good way um, to support people with uh, assistive technology. So we would like to expand this study, right? Expanding for other populations as well, not just uh, young adults with uh, neurodiverse conditions, but we could look at how smartwatches can help um, older adults or kids and other types of disabilities too. Well, Vivian, thank you so much for sharing your insights on With Good Reason. Thank you so much for uh, inviting me to participate. It was great talking to you. Vivian Mahdi is an assistant professor in the Department of Information Sciences and Technology at George Mason University. Support for With Good Reason is provided by the University of Virginia Health System, using advanced cardiac imaging to better diagnose conditions before they become serious health issues. UVAHealth.com. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monica Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Cassandra Deering and Aviva Costo are our interns. Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>